Well, friends, with the Lord's help, once more we turn back to the chapter we read, Isaiah chapter 55. And our text in the words are from verse 6 to verse 7. Well known words, seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, but he will abundantly pardon. Amen. So far we have asked three questions at our services. On Friday we asked, where are your sins gone? And then yesterday we asked, how are your sins gone? And then this morning, what have your sins cost? Although I hope there was something in all these services for everyone present, still probably would say that these, direct, these questions were particularly directed towards Christians. This evening we have a fourth question, but it is especially asked for the benefit of those of you who are not yet believers, who are not yet born again. However old or young you are, whether you're a man or a woman or a boy or a girl, our question tonight is, are your sins pardoned? Very simple, but very important question. Are your sins pardoned? Well, if we're going to answer any question, a serious question about our souls, about our sins, and about our eternal destiny, the only place we can go to find real answers is, of course, the Bible. And to help us understand what it means then, and why this question is so important, we want to use these two verses, Isaiah 55, 6 and 7, to help us this evening. You might have noticed that often in the Bible, Christians are being counseled to wait. We have to wait on the Lord. We have to wait for God's timing of things. We have to wait for God's mercy. We have to wait for the return of Christ. Even in the psalm we were singing a moment or two ago in Psalm 130, I wait for God, my soul doth wait. And again in verse 6, more than they that for morning watch, my soul waits for the Lord. Waiting is part of the Christian life. It's a great part of the Christian life, in fact, to be able, to be enabled to wait upon God. But tonight we have almost the opposite to say to you who are not yet saved. Don't wait. Don't wait another day. Don't wait another week. Don't wait another breath. There is no time to delay. You see, for the lost soul, the last thing you should do is wait. It is never the right thing for the lost soul to wait and see. It is never the best thing to wait and delay. It is never the wise thing. So don't wait, friends. 
Instead, seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Seeking the Lord is a, a great privilege. A wonderful opportunity that's set out for you. There are people all over this world. There are people in the streets of Inverness and in the houses of Inverness who don't know anything about seeking the Lord. There are people all over the world who if they know anything at all of religion, it's false religion. If they know anything of a God, it's a false God. It's a non-God. It's an idol. It's a figment of someone's imagination or worse, it is in fact a devilish plant to ruin the souls of men. Imagine how heartbreakingly futile it is for a soul under Islam to waste his time seeking for a God that does not exist. An invented God. A bitter, cruel God. That poor soul needs mercy. That soul needs the gospel, needs to hear of the love of Jesus in his heart But unless anyone reaches him with the gospel, unless anyone comes to tell him of the truth as it is in Jesus, that soul dies lost, dies in delusion or dies in ignorance or dies in despair or dies in all three. It is not like that for anyone here tonight. You you might think yourself the the worst sinner here tonight. You might think yourself the least likely to be converted. You might say, I am the darkest, blackest soul here tonight. I will never be forgiven. You may be the least interested in the gospel. You may be the hardest in your heart. Maybe unknown to others. And yet tonight our message and our plea to you is plain. Don't wait any longer. Don't put off attending to the command of the Bible. (coughs) Seek ye the Lord. Do you know, friends, I used to think before I was in the ministry, and I was wrestling with a sense of a call to the ministry, that sort of Sunday night services and evangelistic service, they would be the easy ones to preach. Harder to do the doctrine ones, harder to do the feeding to the Lord's people, harder to do these sort of services. I found it the other way. You break our hearts, friends, when week by week you ignore all the begging of the preachers of the gospel, when you are so clever at sidestepping the prodding, the prompting, the pressing of the claims of Christ upon you, when you have the answer ready, a smart answer to deflect away from the needs of your soul, it is a pain of heart to see you Persist in unbelief. But 
the gospel of Christ has not given up on any of you. Not on any of you at all here tonight. You have it every week from your pulpit here. Different ministers come and supply. Different brethren come to preach to you. They keep coming back again. The same message, a different voice, a different person, but the same message because it's the gospel they're bringing, appealing to you in love, not to delay anymore, not to wait another moment, but to seek the Lord for yourself. And we have before us in this text through three good reasons why you ought to seek the Lord now and delay and wait no longer. There are many more sprinkled across every page of Scripture. But there are three set before us tonight. First of all, don't wait because the Lord is near. Because the Lord is near. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. The closeness, the availability, as it were, of the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel is the first and perhaps the best reason of all why we press upon you this plea not to wait any longer. It is a wonderful thing that Christ may be found. And that Christ is near. And you might find that hard to believe tonight here as you sit once again where you sit so often. You might find it difficult to appreciate. Oh, are you telling me, minister, that Jesus is close tonight to me? Is he close to just now? Yes. That is exactly what I'm saying, but more importantly, that's exactly what the Bible is saying. You think about it like this. Think about the many people who you've read of since you had heard of since you were a child, likely, in the Gospels. And there are different characters who come before us who encountered Christ in the Gospels. Think of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a man from Jericho. And he climbed a tree to see Jesus. Very famous passage. The children will know it well. He was a short man, wasn't he? Why did he climb the tree to see Jesus? Because that one time was his opportunity to see the Lord. Christ was on his way to the cross. He wouldn't come back that way again. Blind Bartimaeus was also from Jericho. And that man cried out, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. As Jesus was walking out of Jericho. The point is that for both these sorts of people, these men, it was a rare opportunity they had that Jesus was near, that Jesus was passing by in the gospel, that Jesus may be found for them. It was a rare occasion, and they grasped that occasion. It was a special 
treat for Jesus to be in their town. You see, Jesus went through Jericho. He went through once or twice in his ministry that is recorded in the Gospels. But not often. And he tended to be passing through. He didn't stay in Jericho for long. He passed through it. He never seems to have stayed for more than a few days. He stayed in Zacchaeus' house that night, we know. Possibly Zacchaeus and Bartimaeus would never again get the chance to be helped by Jesus. And when Jesus came near, well, certainly for that blind man, wild horses weren't going to hold him back. The crowd tried to suppress him, and he wasn't having it. You see what I mean? The nearness of the Lord is what makes the matter urgent for the soul. That's what they felt. And maybe you say, well, I still don't feel any different. Today is not particularly special. In these men's days, I can see for Zacchaeus it was special. I can see for Bartimaeus it was special. <coughs> Crowds were following Christ in those days. He was popular. His arrival in any town caused a bit of a stir. It was an event. It was noticed. But I've got no sense of occasion here tonight. I've got no anticipation that anything's different from every other time I've gone to church. Nothing in my heart makes me think that Jesus himself is especially close tonight. You know the church doors always open every Sabbath. You can come here. Maybe you do come here every Sabbath of night of life. It's not unusual. It is exactly ordinary for you. It's exactly habitual for you. Well, that might be so. But friends, there are other people in the Bible. Because maybe your case is not so much like that blind beggar or that short tax collector. Jesus only rarely went in their direction. But further north... From Jericho was Galilee. And up in the towns of Galilee, like Nazareth and Cana and Capernaum, was a very different story there. In these places, in Galilee of the Gentiles, it was sort of a mixed kind of place. Jesus spent most of his ministry there, most of his time. He did most of his miracles and most of his preaching in the towns of Galilee. And he was with the people there every week. Week after week, in and out of the synagogue, in and out of their houses, in and out of their troubled places, amongst their sick and suffering, he healed them, he fed them, he showed them who he was, he showed them his grace day after day. He walked every day in their streets, he preached in their synagogues. And they got very used to it. It didn't cause the same stir in Nazareth after a while to have Jesus come as it did in Jericho. So much so that for Jesus to walk through their streets became ordinary. Now did it mean ordinary mean that Jesus wasn't near? Of course not. It being usual, did that mean Jesus wasn't close? No. Did it mean he wasn't available to save sinners? No. In fact, Jesus would complain really you'd have to say of these places he said they've been raised up to heaven such were their privileges and yet they ignored him largely the point is it didn't feel special for the people of Capernaum for the people of Galilee in the way it's felt special for Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus 
But that didn't matter. That didn't prove it. That didn't at all prove that Jesus wasn't near. In fact, you could almost use it the other way. You could almost say the fact that it's felt ordinary is what suggested he was there far more often. And he was far nearer to them. More available to them than in the special places. So then what I want to say tonight is don't wait any longer because Jesus is here. Jesus is near. And the Bible says call upon him while he is near. Seek him while he may be found. While he is available. While he is in your streets as it were. While that's where he takes his position and his habitual location. In the preaching of the gospel. And still you, and perhaps not unreasonably, you might be quite frankly sceptical. You don't notice anything particularly special or different. But dearest sinner here tonight, perhaps it is because you've had Jesus this near you for so long now that you've stopped noticing him. You have the gospel privileges, you have a gospel church, you have the Bible in front of you, you know the cross, you know the resurrection, you know that Christ returns, you know the call of the gospel, you've lost the wonder of it. It makes little impression upon your thoughts on a hardened conscience week to week. The call of the Saviour in the Gospel is something you've been taking for granted. But you taking it for granted does not mean it is not there. And what we're trying to do in this first point of the word is break through that, that shell of resistance that you have built up. Ask yourself, in honesty, friend, ask yourself tonight, might this be the truth in my case? Might this be why I can sit week by week in church and feel nothing? Might it be because, not that Christ is far, but that he is near so often, and I have hardened myself to it? Might that be your problem tonight? Well, if so, how much longer will he stay? How long before he pronounces the same woe upon you that he pronounced upon the cities of Galilee? Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! Woe unto thee, Chorazin! How much longer before he turns away, takes away from us perhaps? From this community, from this congregation, this gospel, maybe even from your home, maybe even from your family, because we take him for granted. How much longer will it be, friends, if nobody hearkens to him that the gospel is going to be preached in our ears? How much longer until there is no mercy being offered to you in the gospel anymore? Well, we hope and pray that this pulpit declares the unsearchable riches of Christ and the offer of the gospel to poor, needy sinners for thousands of years to come. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if still from this place, when Christ returns, there are those still preaching the gospel and those still hearing the gospel. But whether it is here in a thousand years or not, it is sure that it is here now. Christ is here now. Jesus is near in the gospel. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by.
what will you do? Don't wait. You offend the king by your silence and by your stubbornness. You offend the king and he will not stay pleading with you forever. It only amazes us to think that he has waited this long. I wonder if, or I wonder how often, in fact, some of you here anyway, have heard sermons on these very words. How often do you think you've heard them? Some of you here have heard preaching of the gospel for decades and decades. How many times have you heard a minister plead with you from these very words? And every time the urgency of the text was pressed upon you, while he may be found, while he is near, and every time the urgency of the gospel has passed you by in your unbelief. How long do you think it will be until you hear these words preached again? Maybe soon. Maybe never. The next time a minister chooses to take this text from this pulpit in this city, will you even be alive to hear it? Precious souls, the Lord is still near, and he may yet be found, and that is wonderful. It is the happiest news that we can tell you, no matter how great your sins, no matter how long you have refused him, denied him, rejected him, turned away from him, no matter how black uh, the sins of your soul are, he is near. Don't wait. Don't wait any longer. Don't put off anymore. Seek ye the Lord. Don't wait then, because he is near. Secondly, don't wait because your life condemns you. Notice what happens next. Isaiah carries on to talk about the life of those who should seek the Lord. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Here, friend, is a very sobering reason to seek the Lord's mercy over your sorry sin. Because you have plenty of sorry sin. Sin makes mugs of us all. Sin ruins our lives. You shouldn't wait one breath longer. Not one moment in the midst of the sermon in your heart you should be crying to the Lord. Because sin is corrupting every breath you take. The wicked path that you are walking on and have walked in all your days needs to be abandoned. That's the thrust of the message here. You're in danger. You're in terrible danger. You're going the wrong way. You're on the path that leads to destruction. You're in an awful place. You're in a way of eternal danger. You must get out. The gospel, when it comes to you, doesn't put you in a terrible place. That's not what happens at all. The gospel finds you in a terrible place and warns you that that's where you're in and it calls you away from that place. Your current standing in life is a standing in wickedness. You embrace your unbelief now as a habit of life, as a fact of your existence. As a definition of who you are. And you reject the overtures of Jesus as the saviour. 
And you live your life outside of the nearer kingdom of Christ. And you refuse the offers of mercy that come pounding upon your door. You reject the overtures of peace that he makes to you. You refuse to submit your life to his command when he instructs you. You continue to denigrate the great sacrifice that he made at Calvary coming into this world. You don't think much of it. You you pass it by. You ignore the cross. He says, I did this for sinners. And yet you manage not to think that that applies to you. Applies to somebody else. Applies to this person and that person, but not me. He rose again from the dead, proving that he alone has the key to everlasting life. He can and has defeated death. But you avoid him in your life. The only one who knows about everlasting life. You prefer to go your own way. You try to figure things out yourself. You try to create your own acceptance and righteousness. But you don't actually ever do it. You can't. I wish I could find the right words to get across and address you. I wish it was possible, if you like, to appeal to your very hearts tonight, to get as close to your state of soul as it is possible for a preacher of the gospel to get, to be as if it was only you who has been addressed in the gospel, as if nobody else was hearing this message but you personally. Every week in Ness, in my congregation, I plead with the Lord for mercy and call lost souls. And I'll call them my friends, and I'll call them my congregation, I'll call them my dear people. But every word I use feels too weak, too insipid, too diluted. And I'm always looking for better words to address them, to Try to convince them that it is from love that we say these things. That we long for them to be saved. And that responsibility. I am their under shepherd. They're my sheep. They're my lost lambs. They've entrusted the keeping of their souls to me under Christ. And every week. You watch them live another life, another seven days in sin. You watch them go through their life that way. A life that has been lived against Christ, not for him. Rebelling his commandment, refusing his authority, and it breaks the hearts of the Lord's people to see that. And when we have opportunity and privileges like this to come to a different congregation, here I am tonight. I, I don't know you anywhere near as well as my own congregation. But the longing of this is the same. I beseech you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. I plead with you. I beg you. If only you could see it for a moment, for a glimpse from this side. 
If only you could see now what the Lord's people see. I hope it doesn't not meant to be patronizing, but we see the misery of life without Christ. We remember it. We lived it. We had it. We see the danger of your soul. We see the, the needs that you have. We see the the thinness of the veil that keeps you out of hell. We know these things because we lived that once. So trying to get the right words to address you. Who are you? You're the unforgiven ones. You're the Galileans who have sat under the privilege of Christ for so long you've forgotten how close he is. And, and I wish this were not true in many ways, but friends it is. If that's you, you are the ones who have claimed the deepest spots in hell's bottomless pit because you have refused the privileges of the gospel. You are those who are blind and don't know they're blind and naked and don't know they're naked. You are the wicked who seem almost to have seared your consciences over the determination of your heart to persist in unbelief. <laughs> None of that means that you are beyond grace. None of it. What should you do? Seek the Lord. Now. Do not wait. Do not delay. Because you need to escape the life that you now live. If life it can be called at all. You need out of it now. You need to be delivered from your sin. You need to be redeemed from this rebellion that you have chosen. That you have loved. That you have lived. You need to be rescued from the deadness of your conscience. From the deceitfulness of your heart that lies to you right now. That you don't need to do anything. That you can put it off. That it will all work out someday somehow. And you sit there unmoved. And you're going to hell. Listen again to God's word. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man has thoughts. It gets right into the innermost man. There's something dreadfully wrong with the way you think. With the way you are. With the path you're on. With where you are going. Friends, your unrighteous thoughts. The innermost secret discussions that are held in the councils of your soul. God sees them. And God knows them. And they are such that God says you must forsake them. They oppose God. They oppose the Son of God, Jesus. They're part of what is so wrong with yourself. Your innermost thoughts are traitors to God and they betray where you're at and God sees and knows. And you promise yourself that you're all right and you promise yourself that there's no real problem when you assure yourself that tomorrow will do. And you neglect so great salvation <coughs> when you convince yourself that God will be there whenever you decide to turn to him sometime before you die. These are the thoughts you have to forsake, friend. These are the thoughts that are murdering you. Your righteous man needs to abandon them. He needs to run with his hands outstretched towards the Son of God whilst he is there to be found, 
whilst he is near in the gospel, before it is too late. Look at what your life is. Look at what it amounts to. What are you? Spiritually, if you were to gauge yourself on a spiritual gauge, what do you have? Nothing that is any good. Privileges, but they're outside of you. They're, priv- they're wonders. Blessings, but you haven't made any use of them. Promises, but you've never pled them. Upbringing, but you've not followed it. What do you have? Nothing that is good and everything that is corrupt. You need to get rid of this, and you need to get rid of it now. You need to leave it tonight, because it's only going to get worse. And if you're honest with yourself, are you, are you getting better? Are you climbing out of your unbelief by yourself? Are you, are you improving your unrighteousness and your depravity? No, you're not getting past your sins. You're in a mess. You have no way to atone for all the iniquity you've done, let alone what you might yet do. And you cannot just expect that God is somehow going to forget them or ignore them or let you through anyway and give you a pass. You're dragging your own soul, friend. Every step you take in life, closer and closer towards the punishment and the fury of God and a lost eternity. And so I say again, don't wait. Don't wait. Don't stay where you are. In the lost life that you lead, seek the Lord while he is near. Don't wait because your own life condemns you. But thirdly, don't wait because a Pardoned life awaits you. We call you to the Lord tonight. Not only, in fact, not even chiefly because of your danger. We call you to the Lord to seek him tonight. For your good. For your good. Sometimes we forget to tell people when we urge them to seek the Lord. That he is worth finding. We call you because there is a life to begin as well as a life to leave. Because there is a life of pardon and mercy. There's a life of the experience of the friendship of God. And oh, you're missing it. What are you doing? You're missing the friendship of God. How much do you think that life surpasses the life that you live where you have the friendship of the world? And you have enmity with God. Isn't it insane to choose that life rather than a life of friendship with God and enmity with the world? You are missing out on the best life. You are living a life without God and without hope in this world. What are you doing? Let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God for he will abundantly pardon it's a life that we hold out, oh friends, it is so worth living, so worth knowing. Right now, what life have you got? A life 
of sin, a life of unbelief, a life of spiritual deadness, a life of estrangement from God, but the life that you ought to be living. That's a good reason to seek the Lord. It's the best, wonderfulest reason for a soul to change. The life you should be living is a life where you are basking in the, in the experience of his mercy. It's a life that there is an overflowing, abundant pardon. And it's a life where there is a deep and personal closeness with God himself. Notice what is said. God will have mercy on him. He'll return unto the Lord and he'll have mercy upon him. And to our God. But he will abundantly pardon. Our God. There's a covenant relationship in these words. Not just God. But our God. Not just the God. But your God. The life that you are called to is a life where you will know God and he will know you and you will have a real relationship with God and you will depend upon him and God helps you and God loves you and God supports you and God comes alongside you and God blesses you and God protects you and God keeps you all the way to heaven and you will love him more and more each day. Friend, we commend to you the life of the Christian because we can say hand and heart from all the days of our experience, it is a better life. Not just a bit. In every possible way, it's a better life. It is almost without comparison to even make the suggestion. It's, it's so ludicrous. The life that we used to have, the life that we used to know, oh, it was nothing compared to the life that we have now. What you know as life is lived under God's curse. It's lived under God's condemnation. You live a life cut off from God, which by definition is not really life at all. You exist, but you don't live. Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. So don't. Stay there. Seek out now this life lived under the comfort blanket, if you like, of the mercy of the Almighty. And it's so much better. It's the message we want to bring to you tonight and leave with you tonight. Because, dear friend, this is the life that we call you to. In every way, a wonderful life. To have Jesus... As a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Think for a moment over a few things. Think over the evil that you've done. Think over the wicked thoughts that you've had. Think over bitter words, hasty words that you've spoken. And you know that they were wrong and you regret them. All these things cry out against you. 
they weigh you down. They may smite your conscience. They may convict your soul. They may condemn your life. And you've lived under the weight of every sin you've ever committed all your life. And you don't even know it sometimes, but you have. Can you even imagine what it's like to have all these things that you have done and all the wrong things that you will do lifted from off you? To have them all taken away to have them all forgiven by a promise that will never change from God forever. Can you imagine what life in the gospel is like? To have all that wickedness and all that guilt smothered by the all-conquering mercy of the Lord. It's not, it's not this church's forgiveness. It's not a minister's mercy. It's not the royal pardon of our king or a presidential pardon. It's not even, what is sweet enough, a personal restoration when a friend that you've offended is willing to embrace you and forgive you. And that's a sweet thing. But this is the one whom you have lived every breath you have taken, constantly offending him. And this is him simply washing away all the evil you've done and making you clean in his sight and treating you as though you had every spot of the righteousness of Christ on your account. This is pardon that we're talking about that is deep and rich and real and, and weighty and substantial. All the ill you have ever done wrong, all the sin you will ever do wrong, it is complete and total pardon that we are speaking of here. It is abundant, it is plenteous mercy, plenteous redemption. It's a real thing, it's full. Return, says our text. Don't wait, seek him now. Return to the Lord and to our God, these words, our God, the life of the forgiven sinner. It's not always an easy life, but it is a wonderful life because a life near God is a life where God becomes real and personal. God becomes known and becomes more loved. It is in every way the best life. It is so much better that even to, to put it like this doesn't seem to be enough. It, it feels like, like these words, if you like, it's a too weak a conduct, like you're trying to paint, if you like, with muted colors on the canvas when they should be vibrant, dazzling hues that are jumping away to the eye. To say that one is a bad life and one is a better life, that's utterly inadequate. The contrast is staggeringly more. And so the Bible often describes the change between the one and the other, not as bad life, good life. Poor life, better life. It makes an even greater comparison. It says the life you now live is really death. And the life of forgiveness is a whole new life. It has been born again. It's been regenerated. It's life more abundant. So don't wait, my hearer. Because this Christian life is open to you tonight. Seek the Lord, forsake your sins, return unto the Lord. 
He is inviting you to himself. He is calling for lost sinners to hear his voice and to seek his face. Will you listen tonight as he knocks upon the door of your heart in the gospel and come? Come and begin this new life under the blanket of his mercy with the assurance of an abundant pardon for all your sins. Come and know God. Come and meet God. Come and enter into a whole new standing and relationship with God as your God tonight. But don't wait any longer. Are your sins pardoned, sinner? If you go to him tonight, if you plead with him for mercy, you will be able to say, yes, in answer to that question. Are your sins pardoned? Or to say, yes, I am forgiven indeed. I am not just pardoned. I am abundantly pardoned. For he will abundantly pardon. May he bless his word. Let us pray. <coughs> Lord, our God, as we come to the close of another Sabbath evening, we thank thee for these days that are precious. We thank thee for the sacrament. We thank thee, Lord, for all that is done in thy name this day. We thank thee for the gift that Christ has given his church. He has given us a day that tells of the resurrection, and he's given us a sacrament that reminds us of his return and of his death. And he's given us the gospel to declare to sinners. And oh, how we pray, our God, that there may be poor needy souls tonight who forsake their ways and forsake their thoughts and return unto the Lord. And they know the mercy and the abundant pardon of the Almighty. In Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Amen. Our closing psalm of praise this evening is Psalm 27. From verse 7 to verse 10, four stanzas. Psalm 27 from verse 7. O Lord, give ear unto my voice when I do cry unto thee. Upon me also mercy have, and do thou answer me. When thou didst say, Seek ye my face, then unto thee reply, Thus did my heart above all things. Thy face, Lord, seek will I. <coughs> Psalm 27, 7 to 10. <coughs> oh, Lord,
following are our intimations. We are indeed delighted that a new communicant member, Joan Fraser, by profession of faith, has been added to the communicant role of the congregation. Uh, as I mentioned before, we have fellowship in the manse after this service, and we encourage you, if you are able, to remain and spend some further time of fellowship with us in the congregation. Thanksgiving service tomorrow at 7.30, and again, I would invite you to give thanks to the Lord for his goodness tomorrow night. Prayer meeting is on Thursday, the usual time of 7.30, taken by Mr. Derek Gillis. And please note also the doors communion season for your intimation for intimation and prayer and support if you are able. Services begin on Friday 31st of March at 7.30, on Saturday at 11 a.m., on Sabbath, the 2nd of April at 11 and 6.30. All these will be taken by Reverend Aaron Lewis, Cross Lanes Chapel Reformed Church from Hampshire in England. Then on the Monday night Thanksgiving service at 7.30, taken by Reverend John McPherson. These are all God willing and subject to his will. Now may grace, mercy and peace from Father, Son and Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.